Imagine spending your working life creating something that you're really proud of, only to have it stolen from under you. You find yourself fighting for your livelihood, your company, and everything you believe in. To have that potentially be stolen and to have that be something that was taken from us and used for, for someone else's benefit was, uh, it hurt, it hurt. This is the story of a technology company whose clients tried to steal its software. Ultimately, without the software, without our intellectual property, without the things that we have built from our own minds and from our own industry experience, the company doesn't exist. We'll hear how the company fought back, taking their clients to court in a high-stakes case that played out during a global pandemic. I was already quite anxious about the safety and the health of our team and of our client. And then to hear that there was a positive test um, increased my anxiety. And when it finally came, the jury's verdict surprised everyone. I'm Kate Stetson, and this is Proof in Trial, Episode 1, Resman versus Caria and Expedian. To really understand this story, you need to know what kind of a guy Nick Olson is. Nick is the vice president of development at Resman, the tech company at the heart of this case. In this podcast, you'll hear him described as a really nice guy and not how you would imagine a software developer. And that's all true. But the key to all of this is that a software developer is all Nick ever wanted to be. Back when he was 12 years old, Nick took a class in software design at school. It changed everything for him. From there, I abandoned all games or, or anything that a normal 12-year-old, if you will, uh, would use computers for, and really just got into building things and creating things. And that was something that really fascinated me. And over time, that fascination grew. As a teenager, Nick would help out friends and family by designing software for their businesses. And when it came to deciding what to study at college, there was really only one choice, computer science. A couple years later, in 2008, Nick was still in college when he got a job with Sequoia, a company that managed apartments. The owners of Sequoia needed an online platform and they'd heard about Nick through a mutual friend. Nick met the boss, Elizabeth Francisco, who knew all about the property management side of the business, and together they began developing a software called Resman. A lot of times, software is developed by a bunch of uh, nerds, if you will, or a bunch of software engineers, right? That they think they know what the users need and they go out, they're a bunch of technical people and they build something and they get it out to the market and they realize, oh man, we completely missed the mark because we didn't understand the actual workflows and the day-to-day -day of what these people are doing. So one of the ways that we saw a big differentiator between us and some of our competitors was because we started with a property management company and we viewed and watched and learned and trained right next to the leasing agents and the managers and the maintenance people. We were able to uh, really understand their workflows and then turn that into a simple, easy to use platform that they would actually use that mimics their workflows. 
Creating the software was a lot of work. Nick and Elizabeth worked nights and weekends, but it was also an exciting time. Nick poured his heart and soul into the project. He was getting to combine that fascination with computers with making something genuinely new and different. What he and Elizabeth came up with was software specifically for property companies. Nick says it's kind of like QuickBooks, but on steroids. So if you've ever lived at an apartment complex before, um, you know, you've got a bunch of neighbors, you've got a lease yourself that you have to pay rent on every month. Um, you may be leasing or renting a carport or a parking spot, um, or you may need to, you know, notify them about a pet that you received. Um, so everything that you would need to do if you were yourself living at an apartment complex needs to be tracked in some sort of digital fashion. And so the software that we provide is that tracking software that allows you to keep track of everybody who's living, where they're living there, how long they've lived there, whether they've paid their rent or not. It worked so well that Resmond spun off into its own company. Resmond Software was a game changer. As the years went by, they kept on developing and improving it. Things were going great. Nick got promoted. Resmond was becoming one of the most valuable software platforms in the industry. And then one day, Elizabeth came to Nick with a problem. There had been some suspicious logins. There was potentially somebody else that was trying to copy or trying to mimic or, or at the very least just learn the, what, all of the things that we did quickly. And when they traced the logins, that led them to a company called Caria. It was a company based out of Houston that manages apartments across the U.S. Nick knew the name. They were one of Resmond's clients. It was shocking. It was uh, scary uh, a little bit and, and disconcerting. What Nick and Elizabeth discovered was that Caria wanted to develop a rival property management software and that along with another company, Expedian, they were trying to steal information from Resmond to do it. Man, there was so much time and effort and money that we put into this whole process uh, and, and to have that potentially be stolen and to have that be something that was taken from us and used for, for someone else's benefit was, uh, it hurt, it hurt. There was no question that Resmond wanted to stop Caria and Expedian from stealing their intellectual property, but a lawsuit would be time-consuming and they might not win. In the end, Nick said they had no choice. Even though the company itself has a bunch of employees and provides a bunch of livelihood for, for everyone, the software itself is the company. Uh, and that's, you know, in our branding, in essence, you know, that's why the company's name is Resmond as well as the product is named Resmond. Uh, ultimately, without the software, without our intellectual property, without the things that we have built from our own minds and from our own industry experience, the company doesn't exist. On June 3rd, 2019, Resmond filed a suit against Caria for breach of contract. They also sued Expedian for tortious interference with contract, and they sued both defendants for misappropriation of trade secrets. In other words, Resmond sued Caria and Expedian for breaking their contract and stealing their secrets. Almost exactly a year later, a few hundred miles south of Resmond headquarters, Maria Wyckoff Boyce was working from home in Houston, Texas. She's a pretty calm, unshakable trial lawyer at Hogan Lovells, a specialist in complicated commercial and intellectual property cases in the U.S. 
That day, she got a voicemail from someone working for Resman. I called him back and learned about this lawsuit that had been ongoing for about a year and that Resman was interested in hiring new counsel in. And I got some background information about the case, and then I called my partner and dear friend, Christina Rodriguez. As a trial lawyer, it's always interesting when a client is looking to make a change in their outside counsel, especially close to trial. And so it, it seemed to me that there were probably some challenges or interesting pieces to the case that we would want to know more about. That's Christina Rodriguez, another senior partner at Hogan Lovells. A while back, she and Maria had tried a similar case of stolen trade secrets, along with a third trial lawyer, Jillian Beck. So they got the dream team back together, and after Resman hired them to take over the case, they got to work. Fast. The trial was due to start in a matter of months. Here's Jillian Beck. Our first step was learning the case as quickly as we could to determine our trial themes. Caria had hired Expedian to develop Caria's own property management software to compete with Resmin. Using the passwords Caria provided, Expedian illegally logged into Resmin's platform over 1,000 times in a single year. Caria employees also sent screenshots and videos of the Resmin software to Expedian software developers. Bit by bit, the Hogan Lovells team pieced together a picture of what Caria and Expedian had been up to. It was pretty clear that this was what lawyers call a bet-the-company type of case. In other words, if Resmond didn't win, they were finished. But as they worked, Maria, Christina, and Jillian felt confident they had a solid story to tell, and they also knew they had the best possible witness, Nick Olson. I'll let Christina explain. He was at the heart of our case because he could explain to the jury how the idea started, how it was carried out, and how he works on improving the platform even to this day. And Nick is just the kindest, uh, nicest, most warm person. All of that comes with a highly technical mind. And so the stereotype of a software developer is someone who might not tell a good story to a jury or might not connect with the jury, but Nick was not that at all. Nick just could look at the jury in the eye and explain to them what he had done and what he continued to do. This was all happening in the summer of 2020. So the lawyers were trying to build a case remotely in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. That meant they didn't get to meet the team from Resmond face-to-face until a week before trial. It, it really was fantastic to meet the clients in person. We felt certainly that we knew them to a large extent because of Zoom, but there's nothing like getting to meet someone in person. The case of Resmond versus Caria and Expedian was slated for the courtroom of United States District Judge Mazant in Sherman, Texas. Sherman is right up in the northern part of the Lone Star State, near the border of Oklahoma. It's surrounded by farmland, beautiful lakes, and hills. In November 2020, Maria, Christina, and Jillian walked up the steps of the Paul Brown Federal Building, the city courthouse. As you walk up to it, you notice that it has intricate carvings. It's got beautiful uh, eagles carved into the side of the building. 
Next to the modern office blocks and banks in the neighborhood, the 100-year-old courthouse did look pretty impressive. It's also a place that the lawyers knew well. Every time I walk into that courthouse, and I have walked into that courthouse probably now hundreds of times, I am still struck uh, at the awe of the beauty of the building. The same month Maria and her team walked up those steps, Texas became the first state in the U.S. to have more than a million cases of coronavirus. But they knew that Judge Mazant had already tried several jury trials during the pandemic. And as Jillian explains, he was very strict about following COVID protocols. Everyone had to wear masks in the courtroom, except the examining lawyer who stood behind the podium and the witness who was behind plexiglass. We kept up strict procedures outside of the courtroom as well, wearing masks and spraying our war room with Lysol constantly. After a while, Maria says they all just settled into the rhythm of things. They got used to the strange circumstances and it began to feel like a normal jury trial. Maria, Christina, and Jillian set about making their case. If they were going to win, they had to make the argument for two kinds of damages. The first type of damages is called compensatory damages or actual damages. And those are the damages that a jury can award to put Resmond back where it was before these bad acts had happened. The second kind of damages that the jury can award are punitive damages. And those damages are meant to punish the defendants for their bad behavior. And in order to qualify for those types of damages, Maria, Jillian, and Christina needed to prove that the theft of trade secrets by Caria was willful and malicious. The voice you're about to hear is Jennifer Bevilacqua. She's an associate at Hogan Lovells who was also part of the team. A text message was actually sent after the lawsuit was filed from the CEO of one of the defendants, Caria, to the CEO of our client, Resman. The CEO of Caria in that text said, quote, I will destroy you and Resman. You messed with the wrong person. You messed with the wrong person. For the Hogan Lovells team, this wasn't just a text message. This was an example of malicious intent to share with the court. It wasn't long before it was time for Nick to testify. Maria and Christina prepped him ahead of time, but even so, it was a daunting experience. Being put on the stand, the hot seat, you've got this entire courtroom we had eight jurors and a, and a federal judge and, you know, everyone else that was there, a bunch of lawyers, people that have been doing this for decades, coming down on you and asking you questions. And then you've got myself who, you know, I'm a young guy, uh, you know, young family. Um, it, it was nerve wracking. Nick may have been nervous, but he did well, really well. He connected with the jury five days into the trial and Maria was feeling quietly confident. Then on the sixth day things started to go wrong. A juror and a lawyer in the courtroom both tested positive for COVID. That started to worry me. I, I think it is fair to say that as the, the head of, of our team, I was already quite anxious about the safety and the health of our team and of our client. And then to hear that there was a positive test um, increased my anxiety. So Judge Mazant paused the trial. 
and a lot of other folks got tested. It turned out there were cases found both among the trial teams and the court staff. And since several jurors were unable to return, Judge Mazant had no choice but to declare a mistrial. For Resman, for Nick, it was devastating. We were sitting up there at times, you know, almost in tears talking about what had been taken from us. Um, and to think that that was all coming to an end and that you had, we had to start over from the beginning with a whole new set of people that we didn't know um, and we didn't know how it was going to turn out. We, we knew now that the defendants, you know, are, had basically seen our entire playbook. It was just a, a lot of concern of now what? Uh, now what? And and so for the first little while, I'm, I'm not going to lie, it was, you know, the thoughts crossed my mind at least of like, is this, can we do this again? Is this even worth going through again? As disappointing as it was to have a mistrial happen and to know that we had to start all over again, we decided to turn that situation to our advantage. So the lawyers made a few subtle changes to themes. We decided to take the admissions that we had been able to get from the defendant's witnesses and apply that to our strategy and to make our case stronger. Four months later, in March 2021, Maria Christina and Jillian walked back up the courthouse steps, ready to tell a clear and compelling story and make their case to a new jury. It helped that they could now point out any inconsistencies. We could look at the jury and look at the witness and say, you were in that very witness box, sir, and you gave a different answer to a different jury. And I think that was effective because the jury could tell, wait a minute, what, what is going on here? Why is the story changing? Another lesson that we learned was the importance of owning the room. I can't tell you the number of times that Maria used the word illegal in her cross-examinations of defendants' witnesses. Defendants never just accessed the Resmin software. Defendants illegally accessed the Resmin software. And the jury started adopting that language as well. Every time we talked about the Resmin software, we talked about the password-protected Resmin software. And that was to remind the jury that the defendants weren't accidentally accessing our software, and they weren't looking at something that was available to the public. Jillian, Maria, and Christina wanted to make sure the jury understood the timing in Resmond's case. So they got a copy of the timeline blown up on a board, and they put it in the courtroom right next to the jury box. It was a great idea that almost went badly wrong. Well, we had a beautiful board, a beautiful big timeline that showed the key events. But in the first trial we had early on, we had a little bit of a tiny crisis where the board fell on someone's head almost during the trial in front of the jury. So our amazing paralegal, Christy Cavazos, had the idea of running to Walmart and picked up a series of bean bags that people use to play cornhole or bags and we propped up the giant board with these bean bags and the courtroom security officers thought that was the most funny and fascinating thing, but it worked. And it wasn't the only low-tech idea the lawyers came up with either. When it came to demonstrating the total amount of damages they wanted for Resmond, they had some other techniques up their sleeves. Here's Jennifer Bevilacqua again. 
we uh, projected a calculator up onto the screen so that the jury could follow along as he was adding and multiplying. And, and Christina, who did Mr. Olson's direct, she wrote out this white pad to keep track of the numbers so the jury could follow along um, how we were getting to our totals. It was really simple and easy to follow, and, and the, jury, the jury got it. Nick helped them add up how much it had cost over 10 years for all the software developers in his team to come up with Resman's product. And then the lawyers had to show the cost of breaking the contract. Now, lost profits is a fairly simple idea, right? How much money would Resman have made if Caria had not breached the contract and stayed a customer? So we pulled up the calculator on the screen again. Um, we calculated how much money Resman made each month from its contract with Caria and then each year, and then we calculated that lifetime value of the Caria contract. After nine days of testimony and arguments, Judge Mazant directed the jury to consider the verdict. When they started to deliberate, Maria, Christina, and Jillian caught up on emails and ate lunch. But just two hours later, they got a call to come back to court. The verdict was in. Getting a verdict from a jury is always surreal. Your stomach is always in knots. No matter how well or how poorly a case has gone, you just don't know what's going to happen till that jury comes back. Christina and Nick were sitting together to hear the verdict. Christina tried to stay calm by writing down each number in her notepad as Judge Mazant read it out. The jury found in favor of Resman, awarding the company $32,290,000 in compensatory damages. Then came the real surprise. In her closing argument, Maria had asked for at least $90 million in punitive damages. But what they actually got was even more. The jury awarded Resman $120 million in punitive damages. It was... A moment of relief, an emotional roller coaster had kind of come to an end. There was a half feeling of, regardless of what the verdict was, you know, we were glad that it was over. Uh, but then clearly, since the verdict did go in, in our favor, we were very grateful that we were able to protect what was our own. When we got to the punitive damages award, Nick had an almost visceral reaction. He was sitting right next to me. And it just was clear to me that he was reacting to the fact that his work of so many years and the work of others at Resmond was being validated. And I think I will never forget that. It was an amazing feeling. I felt a sense of relief and great emotion. And I started tearing up because I realized that we had done our job for our client, we were able to get our client's story in front of a jury, in front of eight people who understood what had happened and who told our client that they had been aggrieved and that they understood and that they were doing their part to make it right. An amazing feeling, a sense of relief for the team, and also a pretty incredible result. Here's Tom Connolly who leads litigation for the Americas at Hogan Levels. To get a plaintiff's verdict for more than $152 million in less than two, two hours, I have, I have never heard of such a thing. But it usually takes a jury a couple hours just to pick a foreman, read the instructions, and order a meal. So the fact that the jurors' minds were already made up 
in this case is a remarkable testament to the work of the lawyers. After the trial was over, something unusual happened. Judge Mazant took the lawyers back into the room where the jury were waiting to meet them. And the foreperson almost immediately told us that they had had nicknames for three of us from Hogan Lovells who had examined witnesses. And it was the juggernaut for Maria, the crusher for me, and the confident one for Jillian. And I got a big kick out of that because you can substantively crush (laughs) what you're doing or crush a witness without being ugly or argumentative or overly aggressive. I think that's a hard issue for a trial lawyer, especially for women trial lawyers. And so it was sort of validating for me that I think the jury saw that as a positive thing. And how about Resman and Nick Olson? He'd spent months working with the trial team in a fight to save his company, his ideas, and his work. It had been an emotional journey for them all. There was a genuine bond that I feel that we had with the team um, that we were, we felt like that they were actually, you know, our partners side by side and that they were there with us moving forward. They were really looking out for our best interest and that they were backing us and that they really believed in what we were trying to accomplish. It, it honestly felt like we were somewhat of a family. Even so, A bet-the-company case is not something Nick or Resman are hoping to do again in a hurry. The opportunity cost of having to go through this lawsuit twice, honestly, um, and the things that we could have done with that time uh, are immense. I mean, so it's, it's not something that we want to do again, but our hope is that because we did spend the time that was necessary and we were able to sacrifice that in order to stand up for what we believe and defend what we have built, um, our hope is that that, again, sets somewhat of a precedent to protect our assets, to protect our intellectual property going forward. And we can get back to what we normally, what we want to do, which is just building good software and providing for our clients and helping them um, use it to, to make their own businesses better. You can find more information about our premier trial team at HoganLevels.com. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Proof in Trial. Until next time, I'm Kate Stetson, and thank you for listening.